0: People just like you have taken the brave step to do this thing we call work differently. They tell their self-unlimited story to inspire and encourage you. Another story begins now. Today, it's my great pleasure to be speaking with Julian. Welcome, Julian. Hi, Helen.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure. I've invited you to today's conversation because you are a very interesting person in that you have your fingers in many pies and things that you are doing in your workscape. And I think it would surprise people about the breadth of those things and maybe the depth of those things. And I think there's maybe something interesting you could also share with us about how this came about and what is the day-to-day reality of keeping sane and organized while you do all of these things? So with that, let me kick over to you and you start where you'd like to start.
1: Yes. Well, for, a, for a, the longest time, I've been terrified whenever I went to, I don't know, a social or a networking event, and people would kind of say, what do you do? And I would kind of blurt some sort of the things, well, I work here and there, and I also do this and that. So now I have, now I have an answer. And I say, well, there's one thing that I do very well, which is I listen to people or I read their text and I reflect what I hear or what I read back to them in a way that's easier to understand for them and to others.
0: And what kind of reaction do you get when you say that? Interest. I actually get interest
1: mainly because I'm using sentences instead of keywords. Uh, So it, it opens a conversation. And so that's, what i do there's no word to describe it i use the word writer editor i could say that i'm a coach i could say that i'm a mentor i could say that i'm an advisor and i do that in a range of different settings so i'm currently working on so i'm co-authoring a book on governance i'm editing a book on power structures in china i'm working on a romantic comedy that's a personal project and I'm working on a range of startups and projects. There's one on EdTech, one crazy public policy project creating a new uh, transnational cryptocurrency to fund decarbonization. There is a mental health project, there's an online training program we're calling School of Decision Making. And there's a few that I'm probably forgetting right now. There's finance, social network, etc.
0: You were running out of fingers then as you were counting them.
1: I am running out of, of fingers. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm involved with those different projects. And I guess the way, like I've always, I've always believed in people more than organizations. I've always, yeah, I've always connected with individuals rather than structures. Structures are just, I'm, I'm, a, I'm also a storyteller. A and organization is a myth that, that's been constructed. A, a person has flesh and blood, they have a story, they have like all of these things. So I, I connect with those. So I say that I work on different projects, but in fact, I, I always work with the founder or the person running the project uh, or the key author or whatever their title is. And I advise them personally. So in fact, it's, it's just that I have a number of personal relationships that are of a semi- professional nature. The other element that I came to note is I enjoy things that are very, very new. I always work with projects that are being created. So in their in the very, very early stages, uh, I don't know if it's the Italian grandmother in me that likes dealing with babies or if it's, I don't know, the, 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 that I'm able to deal with chaos and uncertainty or that I just enjoy the, the field of possibility. But for, for that reason, when a project is very, very new, we don't really know what it is yet, and so even what industry, what sector, how it will evolve—that's not—that's not certain because there's, it's more shapeless. So yeah, that's kind of the type of work that I do. And it's completely normal for me. But when I kind of step back, I say, oh, it's actually
0: quite atypical. Yeah, well, in Trinity, You raised an Italian grandmother because what it occurs to me is you sound like somebody of the Renaissance who's maybe doing many things, whether it's a Leonardo da Vinci who was playing in different fields and maybe cross-fertilizing some ideas. Does that feel like you?
1: There's something of that. So my father was like that. My mother was like that. So I, I, I kind of probably inherited that from my family. But one element, there's one thing that I very, very much value, which is uh, freedom, kind of a, a, a radical desire for freedom. And I've always thought if I'm too tied to one project, one sector, one industry, that is an enormous amount of constraint. And that's actually an enormous amount of risk because if for whatever reason, that sector, that industry was to that person that I'm tied to, that organization was to no longer exist or be threatened or be weakened, I would be as well. If I've got six or seven things that I do, I'm fine. Not all of them are likely to collapse at the same time. Uh, Incidentally, those projects I'm working on are all over the world. Like I've got people I work with in all sorts of countries. So I think it's just, it's a deep sense of caution and a deep desire for freedom that that, that drives that more than like there's the excitement of multiplicity but there's this, there's this thing at the yeah
0: and is there some maybe essence or story or moment that you might reflect to us from your childhood that might have been the seed or the kernel to this future you created for yourself
1: oh probably there's there, there's a few so one is dealing with a divorce. Uh, parents were divorced uh, when I was quite young, and then their worldviews of their lives diverged more and more. But I was, I was bridging from one to the other. And so this uh, idea of being, being part of two different nuclear families and, and bridging the differences between them and being able to move from one or the other is something that I've, like I've come to adapt to that reality and find enjoyment in it. So that's, that's one. Another is uh, growing up in Strasbourg uh, in Northeastern France, which is the European capital. And so there's p- part of that desire to be part of multiple things is, I think, a, a kind of a, the way that I've incorporated the, the European dream, which is the, the, the dream of creating a sense of peace by overcoming tensions between nation states and creating something that is above. And the way for me that that has manifested, it's, it's almost like trying to learn and be part of multiple traditions mm. in order to overcome them. In the same way, I kind of want to be part of different sectors, stories, industries, uh, ventures, projects, and as a way to create a greater level of unity. Um, yeah.
0: What was the first, do I say, job that you had after leaving school?
1: So I've lived on scholarships for most of my life because I'm very good at passing exams. So I actually passed a competitive exam in France when I was 20 that gave me six years of scholarships, after which, through that, I tutored at university and was also on a semi-scholarship. I applied for one job in my life, which I got, which was a job with the Victorian Department of Primary Industries as a research assistant to a deputy secretary when I moved to Australia in 2008 and I stayed there for three years and all of the rest were opportunistic gigs that came through personal contacts.
0: You mentioned that when you go to uh, a meeting and people ask you what you do, that you have to use many sentences to describe I'm imagining that there may be a challenge, but maybe it's not even a challenge you need when it comes to something like writing a LinkedIn profile or preparing a resume when people are looking for some kind of clear path, clear progression, titles that they recognize, how do you find yourself getting on in a world where people are expecting those kinds of things, particularly in a written form or static form?
1: Well, the way for, for the longest time, I struggled because I thought that it was useful for me and important to adapt to the norm. And then it kind of dawned on me that all the people I've worked with successfully were outliers that were desperately looking for someone who understood them. And therefore, I realized that if I describe what I'm doing in all of its complexity and people don't get it, it means they're not the people that I'm going to be able to work with.
0: Mm, wisdom,
1: so it's free it's really wisdom, and there's a number of outliers that are desperately looking for people like me to work with them, and they recognise me and they see it and they say you're exactly who we need, and so it's actually now I use it as a filter, so I kind of use those long sentences and unconventional ways of, of describing. It. I mean, the the headline is writer educator, the subliner is I work with exceptional people on complex emerging problems and that kind of is enough and and people who don't get it or who need a linear, if if people need a a linear career trajectory, I'm not that guy. I'm not going to be able to fit. I'm going to be miserable. They're going to be miserable. If they need shapeless chaos, then they won't mind that I don't have a a linear story.
0: I love that sense of self-awareness because I think it grounds a truth for you about those kinds of choices. And particularly, I've found myself similarly when people are asking me to provide something like the norm in terms of a bio or something like that. I sometimes find myself in a conflict between how much do I play the game to be palatable to them, but at the same time, stick to a truth for me about something that's emerging and changing and it seems that you have found a way to do that successfully. Kudos to you.
1: Thanks. You were you were asking where it came from and there's there's another element that I've been reflecting on, which is coming out as a gay man. And essentially that like I grew up with whatever we call them heterocentric expectations that, you know, I would be married with kids and it wasn't really what I was into. And then came a moment when I said, well, fuck it, that's not what I want. and I'm going to do something different. And so that was kind of a a training ground for me to say, well, actually, I'm not going to be part of the mainstream. And it's okay that you want to be, but that's not me and don't impose it on me.
0: And you mentioned that you grew up in France, and we can tell by your accent that maybe it's not the Australian accent of where we are today. Tell me, how did you come to be in Australia?
1: fell in love with an Australian that I met through couch surfing (laughs) is the short
0: story. And what role does your partner play in these decisions about the choices you make for how you uh, navigate your life? Because as I was saying, sometimes there's an external person who expects us to be the norm, but when you've got somebody who's your partner, who's much more intrinsically involved in those choices, how does that go for you guys?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, both of us are unconventional people he's he, he comes from a lineage of lutheran pastors for a while i wanted to be a jesuit we have this kind of monastic aspirations both of us different different forms mm-hmm. uh, when i met him he uh, was writing a an online project where he gave a flower to a different person every day and wrote about it wonderful conducted those projects for seven years so we've both aspired to kind of unconventional intellectual lives when we met with Decided very soon that we would spend the rest of our lives together. And the question was, where would we be? And Australia made more sense. And the agreement we had was, it was his Australian. It would be very easy for him to have a stable job in Australia. He's now a head of English in a a private school. And so that he would absolutely be willing to support me uh, all through, financially, etc. And it took me the longest time to fully lean into it and mm. become comfortable with it. So for for a long time, I kind of created unnecessary worries for myself trying to find stable income, which I did. And then COVID was really the, what do you call it? The, 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 the pivot point? <laughs> the turning point where I kind of leaned into it and said, well, actually, he makes way more money on his own than both of us spend in a year and save for a comfortable retirement and he gives 10 percent of his salary to charity why wouldn't i all that i do is directed towards the public good in an exploratory manner let's just lean into that and so i Mm. completely lifted off the the need to generate income and incidentally that has allowed me to generate more because now i go to people and say i don't need i don't care if you me or not. But that's, I think, how much it's worth. And people say, yeah, cool.
0: <laughs> and I think some people might think, oh, that's only possible because, you know, there must be largest amount of money. But I think you said something very key in there about the lifestyle choices you've made, about what the expenditure might be.
1: Absolutely. We live in a 50 square meter apartment in the city. We have no car. We have no car park. We have no children. We don't have luxury tastes uh there's a whole range of things that yeah we don't spend money on i've traveled internationally at times i had international gigs but otherwise we don't have expensive holidays or so for that reason now like our, our day-to-day lifestyle not that we limit ourselves on anything we have a box of organic vegetables delivered and we go to the local chinese restaurant or, or whatever small restaurant on a regular basis but it's it, we still we make way more money than we spend, uh, and I don't know. Coming from Europe, Australia is so wealthy, and the salaries are so high that I don't know. I I, I don't see how we would spend all the money we have.
0: And I think there's something important in there for people who are listening in terms of it's not just what you earn, it's what you choose to spend it on. And if you both spend the money on, but also spend your attention and spend your time and spend your energy on. And what your story, I think, reveals is that you've identified some things you want to expend those resources you have in terms of your heart and your energy and your time and things that you can see that are doing good in the world but also that from a financial point of view that in your household, you've decided what things that you might spend money on such that it enables the expenditure of those other things in a much more holistic sense.
1: There's a lot of that. I mean, there's two, there's two aspects to it that I see. One is, I don't know. I get a sense we're mammals. What matters is not money, it's status and power and relationships and all those things. So you can be idealistic and say it's, you know, it's about love and relationships and I I buy into that. Or you can be very cynical and say it's social status. But when you have a lot of money and you buy, you use it to buy whatever, a Ferrari, an expensive holiday, etc. Or you can spend no money and build a charity. To save the world, which I did. I don't know if I saved the world, but I built a charity, <laughs> or write a book, or do all of all, all of those things. Uh, and that also gives you status because people respect that because there's a sense that it's it's useful that some people try and do and explore new things, even if they fail. So it's kind of a it's a shortcut. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is like one of the one of the reason I think a lot of us want money is is fear of the future. So we, of course, we invest, save, et cetera. And I've been working, I, I was invited to work on global catastrophic risk for a while, uh, prevention. So uh, catastrophic climate change, ecosystem collapse, et cetera. It's all over the news. And I think we live at a period of history where the risk to, say, our welfare in 25 years is not tied to how much money we're putting in our super account right now, but whether... There's going to be a river system or whether global fisheries are going to collapse or not and so for me spending my energy working on uh, initiatives that will work to create more resilience in relation to uh, potential collapse or and or avoid the worst of it makes much more sense than investing uh, my time and energy in projects that would give me money for myself but contribute to the problem like i, I can't I think I'm just unable to deal with certain types of cognitive dissonance. Mm. And that type of cognitive dissonance is something that I'm just incapable of dealing with.
0: And I think, again, that speaks back to some keen self-awareness that these things are not unexamined in your life in terms of what's going on in the world, what part you can play, what you contribute, what you gain, what that means for your household. And I would encourage anybody listening to this podcast conversation to reflect on what you're saying, Julian, because I think for many of them is, oh, no, no, life is the way it is. And what I think we're saying here is, is it? Does it have to be? Have you stopped and thought about these things, even just not just for yourself, but taking even that longer perspective? So the choices that you make today, you might be thinking about for your superannuation in the sense of your future, but really what your choices you're making today are affecting the future in 25 years that we all share, not just your personal future.
1: Hmm. There's a French author that I really like called André Gide, who's been slightly forgotten, but he He got a Nobel Prize, comes from a family of pastors as well. And he has this quote, he says, it is a duty to make yourself happy. And I've been reflecting on that quite a while and thinking about, okay, it's, I know that habits and habits of thought, habits of like body and habits of thought and habits of heart take a long time to shift. And it's, I should be responsible about those and think about creating a way of being in the world that will support a greater, greater chances of happiness, irrespective of what happens. And that's probably not working for a dysfunctional company that doesn't respect the environment in order to make money so that it can protect me from whatever collective collapse will happen.
0: One of the ideas in Self Unlimited is there are seven responsibilities that you take on for the workscape you want to inhabit. And one of those is reign, as in being the sovereign. And what I'm hearing from you is some very clear sense of the sovereignty you want to create over your life and how that not just speaks to the life with you and your partner, but the life that goes beyond and that you inhabit and contribute to.
1: Absolutely. I love that concept of, of, sovereignty. It makes me think of, of one thing. So th- there's been one insight recently that I've had for a while. I had a sense that in order to do the type of activities that I do, I would need to create structures, businesses, names, brands, whatever. And, and the more it's evolved and the more I've actually simplified all that and centered everything around me, my name, my practice. So now, there are structures that exist because there is a legal world and that, that can be useful and there's things I do with people, blah, blah, blah. But everything is centered on my name. It's me as an individual doing work with other individuals. And, and I think that that notion of sovereignty that you, that you describe is tied to that. It's kind of, that's something simple that I have a degree of control or, or power over and where I find a sense of freedom
0: one of the ideas that comes with that in the self unlimited is you've described the reign of julian for julian unlimited and somebody might be listening and think oh am i supposed to be like julian no you define the reign for you so the reign for helen unlimited could look different or be different than the reign for julian unlimited but we are clear on what it means to us and where we sit in that and why that's important to us
1: absolutely i think i think there's a It's understanding what a role, it's kind of the levels of being a role model. There's the kind of, the simplistic is do exactly like me, which is idiotic. Like I'm doing what I do out of a, a really odd trajectory. Somebody with a different trajectory will do other things. Plus we need the world to have diversity. But then there's a kind of meta level. It's kind of, I hope that possibly by being more candid about the way that I operate, I can encourage other people to also be candid about the way they operate. Which will be very different in its details, but possibly similar in philosophy of being guided by uh, a strong personal narrative and a sense of a sense of where can you actually be useful to the world.
0: Indeed, indeed. Sometimes I say to people when they hear narratives, particularly coming very strongly around, everybody should have a purpose, and you should be purpose driven. And I've met some people who are like. I can't relate to that. I don't get what that's about. And for me, the self-unlimited idea has got a level of agnostic, agnosticism, I can't think what the adjective is, <laughs> you probably can, that sense of agnostic quality to it, in that I'm not saying that your reign has to be about purpose, but for somebody whose reign is about purpose, you run with that, you wholly imbibe in that you draw on the wisdom and knowledge of people who do speak about purpose and you utilize that. But if it doesn't resonate with you, that's perfectly fine because you define your reign and what, goes with that and something of the other seven responsibilities they kind of circle around that notion of brain so they're about the rules the reputation the relationships the resources the revenue and the renewal aspects that you would do in your life and so how those responsibilities show up in julian unlimited would be quite different in how they'd show up with somebody else so i'm curious back to a question i asked you in the beginning very functional and pragmatic. What does this look like on a day-to-day reality? Because there might be some people like, I can't keep my head straight with one job. How does this fella Julian keep his head straight with all these fingers and pies? You mentioned that, you know, from a structure's point of view that there's not necessarily a business. You know, is it 15 email addresses and is it a calendar that's full of all sorts of things? Or do you choose a day of the week to do some work and not other work? And are you physically moving into different people's offices all the time? What is it really like?
1: So, okay, it's chaotic and it's kind of not as much work as it looks like. So it's one email address. It's a Gmail address. Whenever somebody asks me, like, whatever, a professional thing, I say, why would, you, would I need one? It's a number of projects, but I don't know. That in, in all the projects that I'm in, there's moments of greater or lower intensity. And for now, it seems to balance itself off so there's this a lot of what i do is i sit at a computer and i edit text concretely speaking that is most of my actual work the second biggest item would be being with people either one-on-one or on zoom calls i rarely go to their offices i meet them outside but sometimes i do Mm -hmm. i listen to them i take notes in a completely chaotic manner on pieces of paper and then i say i think that what you are trying to tell me is this, is that correct? Or this is how I would phrase it. And then I go somewhere and I type the notes and I send them to people. I like to work from cafes because I find them highly uh, contained and stimulating. I mean, my biggest tragedy is I'm an extrovert doing introverted work. This is the biggest pain. I I like to do things that are slightly uncomfortable, but that is my biggest source of discomfort, uh, I think in my professional life. So yeah, I work between home and cafes. COVID has been terrible because it's more difficult to work from cafes. You feel that you need to move on or um, anyway. And it's too cold in the winter in Melbourne to work from terraces. And there are moments when I need to reschedule things or negotiate deadlines because there's too much, but not, not often. One of the really good things about this kind of very independent life that I have is I'm able to manage my workflow. I've always been extremely fast. I tend to be able to do things about sometimes half the time that other people need for the same level of quality, but very erratic in my energy level and I need to rest and pause quite a bit. And so an office environment where you're surveilled to be constantly moving at a steady pace is my definition of hell.
0: I agree. This is the
1: worst thing I can imagine. And so being entirely independent and I need to deliver on my commitments. I cannot not deliver on a commitment. But how I do it is a space of absolute freedom, meaning I can be erratic.
0: So there's a conversation I heard recently about how a group of my compatriots in New Zealand are putting together an international petition for a four-day working week. On one level, I get it. On another level, I don't. What's your thoughts about the notion of a four-day working week, given the reality you've just described?
1: doesn't apply to me. I work on weekends. So what I want is radical flexibility. And there are certain types of professions where you clearly can't have that. Like if you're a client-facing, it's a hospital, it's retail, You, this is not adapted for the type of work that I do that's completely adapted. The idea of being constrained to do all of my work within four days is terrible
0: and potentially that it's only on monday tuesday wednesday thursday and somehow friday saturday and sunday are clearly out of bounds
1: mm. i've never had just one job in my entire life i think there was one moment when i started a role with an international ngo where i had just one job for three months i remember that moment um in in 23 years of professional life So it doesn't make sense to me, but I guess it makes sense for other people who live other realities and it wouldn't affect me because as a freelancer, I would still do whatever I want.
0: So is there some kind of constraint that's useful and that we all get 168 hours a week? Is there maybe a, figure of hours that you've set yourself in which certain things happen that are maybe work-like as compared to the time you would give to your partner and your family and other things that are outside maybe those very fuzzy work boundaries?
1: I really I kind of believe in cycles so there's I don't know there's even in terms of the week there's one thing that's very important for me which is entirely open days and Days with interpersonal commitments. So that's a distinction that is highly useful for me. And when I have a week, when I don't have at least three days that are entirely open, that causes a lot of tension and anxiety. I might spend 12 hours working on a text on any of those days. So it it could be very deep, intense work, but have no commitment other than to myself and absolute freedom of movement and being wherever I want whatever pays so ensuring that there is this kind of very deep maker time i think would be very profitable for people and limiting the the moments when you have constraints that come from the need to coordinate with other people that that would be the main thing for me
0: what i like about that is that it stands counterpoint and maybe a not necessarily a negative or a, a, an opposite way to often advice that's given by other people, which would be, you know, take a 20-minute chunk of time here or a two-hour chunk of time there and book that for yourself in your calendar. Now, I know for myself, sometimes that works, but I also know that from a maker point of view, I respond well to that same notion of a day that is clear without appointments because I don't want to stop what I'm doing and interrupt where I might be in a flow where I might have gone deep. And for me, sometimes the challenge is that I've been in that deep state for two or three hours where conventional wisdom would say, Oh, no, you should take a break every 20 minutes and get up and walk. Whereas for me, that actually impedes my sense of flow when I'm in it, but also if I know I have to break out of it, it actually impedes me entering it because there's a sense of I won't be able to go where it goes because at some point time or an appointment's going to pull me out and require me to be present in a different way.
1: Absolutely recognize my experience in what you describe. And as I was listening to you, it's the magic of extroversion. You have new ideas when you talk to people. So thank you. But I wonder if one of the causes is a deep understanding of uh, complexity and uncertainty. So some of the work that I do, I guess some of the work that you do as well, is about engaging with new complex problems. So I'll help somebody, like a concrete example, I'll help somebody write a chapter of a book or a white paper about an idea that hasn't really been formulated before. And they give me a draft. my goal is to understand the draft understand the gaps reorganize it restructure it before i go into that work i actually have strictly no idea how long it is going to take where it's at what the level of complexity is what the level of difficulty would be i cannot know it there is no way for me to know it even based on my experience and knowing that person meaning that it could be solved and I could finish the task in an hour or in eight hours, irrespective of my rhythm, etc., simply because I don't know. And so for that reason, if I have a a meeting in the afternoon, I won't be able to go into the like be fully open to the possibility of encountering deep complexity.
0: And that makes another point of difference in that often people think of their time being attributed to an amount of money. And also there's very much the language around with organizations about the goals and having clear goals about what you're going to achieve. Whereas I find that often frustrating with the work, because I think maybe at a high meta level, there's some clarity about where we want to end up. But when we enter this work, we don't know what we'll find or where it might go or what might be needed. And to your point, whether it will take an hour or whether it will take eight hours, and yet the world wants these things in nice little packages so then you can say, oh, your hourly rate is this and you came here to achieve this kind of goal and you need to tell us that beforehand so we know that you were the right person for us to engage. But I think to your point about that filtering out, if you are having to play that kind of engagement, almost that kind of game with people, maybe they're the wrong people to be working with.
1: From my training in France, the idea of being paid by the hour was so foreign to me that the first time it happened was when I had this job with the government in, uh, in Australia. And the very first contract was by hour. My, the, the manager explained to me how it worked. And I told her, because I was a bit candid, but also a bit facetious, so you mean that I'm going to be paid more if I do the work more slowly? And which was the actual reality. And she paused for a moment, and then she was embarrassed. And then she told me, that's not exactly how it worked. I said, "Wow." how? Anyway, and it was never really solved. It stayed, it stayed at that point. So yeah, I think that the, the most perverse incentive that I've come across is the incentive to work more slowly in order to be paid more. It makes no sense whatsoever. I ended up loving that government job because one of the things that was needed was work in extreme urgency. Like Suddenly something would come up, and a brief needed to be made, and there were only three hours. And then, and that worked for me. That was amazing. And then the rest of the time, I was kind of on call and could do long projects. There are certain setups where I've, I've begun to figure out like packages that work in terms of times. So I found one, for instance, is helping somebody who has a loose idea turn it into a draft white paper, and that's three sessions of two and a half hours plus a bit of writing at home. And I, we always get somewhere. it's not it's not a shareable product but it's an internal draft that makes sense sometimes it needs an extra two hours and a half so it could be a bit longer i warn people but i know that we can always get there except sometimes where we arrive is oh there's more that needs to be thought out or it kind of opens other problems so there are some things where you can kind of anticipate but otherwise yeah a, a lot of Complexity work. You don't really know how complexity is until you get into it.
0: Which I think for many people listening, like, really, what is this work that Julian and Helen are talking about? I can't relate to it. I would argue though, there's an element where it's becoming more and more the kind of work that people need to engage with, if not they're starting to engage with in many roles at, at many different kinds of levels. And so when people talk about the future of work as they're listening to us, maybe they're getting a bit of a hint about what that future of work, well, for us, it's our present work, but for them, what might be the future of work? Which brings me to a question. What is some advice, Julian, that you might give people if they're contemplating a future of work that's a different trajectory than what they're on based on the kinds of things we've been talking about? If they're like, oh, I'm thinking I'd quite like to try this workscape form, as Julian has described it, what would be some advice you could give them?
1: So I have this counterintuitive possibly piece of advice, is that the past is the best predictor of the future. And so in order to, often when we say, oh, I want to change, I want to do this other thing, we kind of think, oh, I'm going to do something different from what I've done in the past. And what I would encourage actually is to, do, to look very closely at what you've done in the past And to say, this is what you're going to be doing in the future, because that's what you've done. That's what you've chosen to do. If you've done it, you've made a choice to do it. That's what you're good at. But possibly try to strip away, as I was describing at the beginning, strip away the labels and replace the nouns with with verbs. So instead of having a job description that's a, a noun, say, what have you actually done? What are the tasks that you do? And how can you carry those tasks into different settings going forward?
0: So uh, rather than saying, I am a project manager, I manage projects, but then you could expand that. Well, what kind of projects in what kind of context? And is there a particular style you bring to how you manage projects?
1: Even without looking at the, at the object and projects, what do you mean by manage? What is it? Do you ensure that people keep their time commitments? Do you break down a task into subtasks? Are you able to anticipate correctly how many resources are needed to do something so all of those are aspects of project management a good project manager and it's kind of which of those do you excel in and which of those gives you the deepest sense of joy and then you can be the best person or an excellent person at knowing how many resources will be needed to accomplish something for instance and then that's what you do
0: and that clarifies, I think, sometimes something too, when people talk about transferable skills, where they might go, I don't see how a project manager transfers. Oh, if you take it down to that level, oh, actually being wise and careful with resources and being able to do that. Oh, there are many situations where people aren't looking for a project manager, but they would be looking for that kind of ability.
1: Absolutely. And it's very, it's very calming as well, because suddenly you're no longer thinking, oh, I need that title, et cetera. It's, It's actually, it's going to be useful for a a very long time to be able to convince people to stick to their commitments or to anticipate how much is needed to accomplish a goal. And if you're excellent at it, you're going to keep being excellent at it and it's going to be useful.
0: And somebody will want to utilize your ability in it.
1: Absolutely. Whereas being a project manager is completely irrelevant and obsolete.
0: Brilliant. And did you have some more advice?
1: If I was kind of to look back at my younger self, I think it's taken me a long time to realize that I didn't need to talk to the mainstream. And I would encourage myself to say, if people don't get you, it's probably because you're not
0: meant to work together. Oh, I like it. So here's an interesting question. What advice could you give people about finding these people who are the outliers?
1: So the thing about outliers is we're lonely, we're weird, and once we meet another outlier that gets us, we bond very fast because there's few of us and we just, we want to connect. And there's a kind of a, a spark and a desire to be together. And the more you kind of try to pass as a mainstream person, the more difficult you make it to kind of find another outlier. So it's kind of, Strip off the mask and you'll find the other outliers right away because they're out there looking for you.
0: And what I'm hearing in that is don't think that you'll go to a network meet-up type thing where there are lots of people who are maybe acting more on the mainstream necessarily to find these people. Or if you do, look around the room at people who literally maybe are, you know, considered the wallflower or standing on the, out on the outer of conversations wondering what's going on.
1: Mm. So it's also been my approach to networking, etc. It's It's pull rather than push. Go to a corner, but just say, who can I pull to me? Nice. Draw. And it's increasing your own sense of gravity. Uh, and, and self-awareness goes with that, et cetera. But it's who will be drawn to me? And that person may be right or not. Sometimes you draw the, the wrong people. But it, it switches the perspective. Because if you're, if you're weird, you have a very strong capacity to attract other people who are compatible even if there's not many of them.
0: I like it. Well Julian you and I have known each other now about a decade and I think we were one of those people who found each other in one of those outlier spaces for which I'm very grateful.
1: Yes it's been amazing and we've kept and we've kept bumping into each other. We We do. Yeah.
0: In very odd places and something I will just mention that might be of interest to people as listening to this podcast we're recording this in 2021, but in 2020, you and I came together in one of those moments to do a collaboration around rituals. And so if you are interested, um, I can send you the link to hear and read about the rituals that we collaborated and co-created together with some other bunch of people. But that for me is another great example of something to do in your broader workscape that you do just to inquire, just to be curious, to try something, not because money was involved, not because an organization required it, not because it necessarily even has some strategic value. We were in a kind of what if headspace and we came together and we did something and invested our time and energies and I think something magical happened.
1: Hmm. I think it's a way of, I don't know, there's a form of humility that is useful to embrace. It's very, very hard to predict What will come out of what? And so doing more things in an open-minded manner just increases the chances of new encounters coming around, new projects emerging. We often tend to want to... I've seen a lot of people who seem to believe that they can control their marketing or their engagement or who they meet, and I don't believe that it works. I haven't seen it work. But uh, serendipity, engineered serendipity, can open very interesting doors.
0: Well, thank you so much for having a fascinating conversation with me today. Thank you. Workscapes are changing everywhere. For more goodness to change your workscape, visit www.beselfunlimited.com.